0: Macy's Mother's Day Gift Guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion Eau de Parfum, Coach floral printed leather Cassie Crossbody bag and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch oven. Shop at macy's.com/giftfinder.
1: Hi, I'm so glad you're here. The Covenant of Water is truly one of the most gripping, exquisite novels I have ever read. And I've been reading since I was three. It's my 101st book club pick. I'm so enthralled with this epic story. I think of it as a modern masterpiece and now I'm excited for you to hear our captivating conversation with okay. the brilliantly talented author, Dr. Abraham Ferghese. What an honor to
2: be with you.
1: On this six-part podcast, we're diving into all 10 parts of The Covenant of Water. That is the best by Felicia moment I ever read. We'll also hear from readers like you,
0: What was the hard truth that you hope to convey in writing this book? Hmm.
1: Oh, thank you for that very thoughtful question. Come along with me on a soulful, extraordinary journey through adventure, family secrets, medical mysteries, romance, and finally, the shimmering resilience of the human spirit. This is The Covenant of Water, the podcast. Hello again, everybody, to all our Super Soul listeners and book club readers. We are back in an episode three of our six-part special podcast, where we're talking about this modern masterpiece, The Covenant of Water. And in this episode, we start to dig into parts three and four of this breathtaking epic, The Covenant of Water. I love reading all of your comments and how expanded, you all are being made because of these words. It's my 101st book club pick and one of my favorite books of all time, all time, top three, Okay, I'm with Dr. Abraham Verghese, the best-selling author of this exquisite, mystical novel. And I think of this book as 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 a piece of art that you can experience and take with you. And it will be with me always. I really, I could start crying, but for me, the written word, especially when written this well, is uh, is a sacred thing. And we're also going to be hearing from readers who have questions for you, Dr. Verghese, a reminder for those who haven't read the book yet that we're doing this because we want to go in. Uh, so go buy a copy of the book whenever you can. It's a great spiritual teaching. And you know what I'm gathering from just talking to you? Did you intend for it to be a great spiritual teaching or did it just happen that way?
2: My goal was simple, a good story well told. Um, I think the spiritual came out of the voice that I was trying to create for this book. You know, that was mm-hmm. kind of an antique voice for that time mm-hmm. period, 1900 to 1977. I really wasn't trying to proselytize or preach or anything like that. but.
1: I found myself slipping into it. You weren't trying to deliver any particular kind of message to us.
2: Not particularly. I think, you know, some of the religious, spiritual stuff is organic to that period, to those characters, so Mm -hmm. I could hardly avoid it. It was part of the story.
0: Mm. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct varied and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to the wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Have you ever brought your
1: magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you, if you could? Would you? When we come through, it's true magic, because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. So let's get started, everybody. I know you're ready for part three. At the beginning of part three, we're back in India, and Bigamachi is still grieving the loss of her beloved stepson Jojo, and as she's been trying for 18 months to get pregnant. And uh, on page 179, you write, then she miscarries, she's stunned. That possibility, possibility hadn't, hadn't occurred, occurred to, her. to her. Take nothing
2: for granted, God reminds her, unless you want to feel its loss. What can one do but go on? She miscarries again. When she recovers, she looks to cast blame. Might this be the doing of the spirit in the cellar? Could it be that spiteful? She descends to the cellar and sits on an empty urn, sniffing the air, taking her soundings. To her surprise, she feels the spirit commiserate with her. She comes away mollified. God only knows why miscarriages happen. God only knows, but doesn't choose to explain.
1: How did the ghost of Jojo's mother help you tell this story?
2: I love the idea of ghosts in the sense of, you know, not ghosts who come and spook you, but the presence of someone who's lived in that place still existing. And uh, I love the idea of a benevolent ghost, for the most part benevolent, and you know, she's mm-hmm. prone to anger. Um, that also, I think, came about pretty organically, but it would have been in keeping with my memories of my childhood where ghosts were described in very concrete terms. So you didn't grow up afraid of ghosts? You, could, you can be afraid of certain ghosts, but not all ghosts are scary ghosts. You uh-huh. know? You know, ghosts are your ancestors floating around. Um, it's by no means is rule, but I heard enough of this to believe it.
1: Amachi takes Baby Maul to see Dr. Rune, uh, and he diagnoses her with cretinism, a thyroid deficiency that causes abnormalities. And on page 192, in chapter 23, What God Knew Before We Were Born, Dr. Rune has this to say
2: The door into her daughter's future has been pushed open. The view is crushing. She wants to argue. He reads her mind. She'll always be a child, that's what I have to tell you. She'll never grow up, I'm sorry to say. He smiles at baby Maul. But what a happy child, a child of God, a blessed child.
1: Joel has a question about baby Maul.
0: Hi, I'm Joelle. I would love to ask Abraham what the condition baby mole had. If it was present day, um, what would she be diagnosed with? My friend and I were going back and forth as we were reading the book trying to figure that out.
2: Uh, Thank you for that question. Uh, Fortunately, we live in an era when newborns are screened for that at birth. And basically, it's a deficiency of the thyroid that's rare. But when it does happen, the child fails to develop. And if you don't recognize it almost at birth and treat mm-hmm. it, uh, the child will really be impaired in its development. So
1: and so was that another one of those uh, diseases you had in the, your back pocket?
2: You it's actually out? one that I recall vividly from my childhood. Oh. I remember going with uh, my grandmother to visit a relative, and I mm-hmm. rounded a corner from wherever the living room was, and just wandering down a hallway, and I saw this, you know, this woman, but she was a child. And you know, as a child myself, it was sort of a scary sight because she looked wizened, and yet she was sitting there playing with her dolls. And and I came back and asked my grandmother or my mother, and oh yeah, that's you know, this is, she's had a thyroid problem. And you know, it stayed with me. It was a very vivid obviously. image, <laughs> obviously, um, and a very and a great tragedy because it represents a treatable condition now, not necessarily treatable then. And she must have been, I would guess, in her 50s or 60s when I saw her. I never saw her again, but it's one of those indelible images. And um, I think I drew on that memory in in conjuring up Baby Maul. I have no idea if she was anything like Baby Maul, but that was the condition.
1: You said earlier that one of your goals was to tell a good story well. Is the secret to that paying attention to everything. Are you a person who is noticing, paying attention to, being in the present moment with everything? Because it l- seems like you hold these memories, or you put something in your back pocket from a disease that you learned about you know, several decades ago. And I don't think that I'm special.
2: I think every one of us is a, is a, is a, is a product of the succession of stories that left their imprint on us. You know, we're brought up by fairy tales and stories told to us by our parents. We're influenced by the books we read or read. And so in my case, I think as I sit down to write, I'm often drawing on the things that are most vivid to me. But I must say that as a physician and as a writer, when I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, I heard the same aphorism, God is in the details. Mm. We say that in medicine. I say that in medicine. It's true in writing as well. I mean, you want to make something come alive. Uh, One way is by being very authentic in describing it so that the reader can see it, even if it's, I mean, you said earlier you didn't know what Mundu really was, but you could guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when Tom Clancy writes about submarines, for example, I don't know everything he's saying, but he's creating enough verisimilitude that I can guess and I can Mm. see it in my mind's eye. That's
1: sort of what I'm trying to do. That's what you've done. Let's talk about the character Rune. One night while sitting on a bench, this is one of my favorite passages in The Covenant of Water. One night while sitting on a bench looking out at the water, he has an unexpected mystical moment. He's been watching a man uh, with leprosy limp past him. And I, I, I just love this passage on 196. In chapter 24, A Change of Heart, you write this. In a dizzying shift of perspective, Rune suddenly feels he has become the leper. It's Rune who looks out through scarred, opaque corneas. Rune who sees cloudy, smeared images with no edges. Rune who discerns light and shadow, but remember is what what it was was like like to have have moonlight moonlight fall on his face. Those
2: are runes misshapen, ulcerated feet wrapped in bloodied gunny sack that is secured with coir rope. The moment passes. He has no explanation for what just happened. The sense of being momentarily embodied in another. The difference between him and the leper is no difference at all. They are just manifestations of the universal consciousness. Rune is real, the leper is real, the fishing net is real, yet it is all maya, their separateness and illusion. All is one. The universe is nothing but a speck of foam on a limitless ocean that is the Creator. He feels euphoric and unburdened,
1: the peace of God, Which passeth all understanding. So, have you ever had a mystical experience? Anything like that?
2: I've had something close, but clearly that was, you know, sort of a very mannered paragraph that I worked on for a long time. But in in my career, I remember this moment with HIV in the small town, the Mm. subject of my first book, where
1: Which may I interrupt to say, if you haven't read My Own Country, you should. It's the book that I went to immediately after finishing The Covenant of Water.
2: There was this, thank you for for mentioning that, there was this moment where I had begun to feel that HIV was this curse that had been visited on me in terms of my practice. Mm -hmm. I was seeing people with HIV and therefore people were, I suspected, otherwise avoiding seeing me because they didn't really want to,
1: be with the doctor be who'd with been the, with the uh, HIV you know, patients. Yeah,
2: exactly, and, and it was cumbersome. You know, this was before Ryan White monies and, you know, I, I was doing the handicap parking forms. It felt like an onerous thing. And then I remember the combination of one particular patient that day who I just, you know, in talking to him, and that's all one really had to offer. There were no protease inhibitors or, you know, cocktails or nothing in that era. And so we would talk, and in that talking, I remember being very conscious of, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, so to speak. Um, and also, I was reading And the Band Played On by Randy Shilts, and having this sense that the world was being divided into two by a litmus test, at least the medical world. And you either stepped up or you stepped away. And there were plenty, plenty of people who stepped away, but they were heroic figures in the cdc the nih elsewhere who stepped forward and i i had this epiphany that um, far from being uncomfortable by this i should embrace it and this was what i was destined to do for some reason and uh, this was going to be my my thing and i remember consciously just stepping in so to speak you know i i was going to give it my all and you know paradoxically it led me to things I didn't know at the time, such as writing my own country. I mean, this moment, Oprah, if I may, is predicated on that moment of complete identification with this person with this unfortunate condition. You know, it led to many things, but it turned out to be just the right thing to bring me to this moment and to your wonderful readers. So, yeah, I felt mystical moments. That was one.
1: Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Life is a highway, and on it there
2: will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: <laughs> of a detour. Eric has a comment about this part of the book. Let's hear from Eric. Eric. Hello, everybody. This is Eric
0: Alonso, O'Brien Insider, resident guy in New York City, Manhattan. I want to talk a little bit about pages 196 and 97. There's this beautiful
1: quote about awareness and all of us being one, uh, and the leper being as much as a, a full human being as the doctor and then the the separation between the both is an illusion. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I thought it was very profound, and it seems like it could be the solution to a lot of problems. Thanks, Eric. Would you say this is one of the core themes of the book that you're trying to get across here, from a leper to surgeon, we're all one, just as you were saying about your experience?
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, I never have a core theme that I'm trying to push down the reader's throat, but in retrospect, looking at
1: what I've done, I think that is an I love that thing. you don't have a core theme, that you're just you writing know, a story and the story takes you where the story needs to take To a you. degree, to yeah. a degree. I mean, there's a moment when
2: you know what's going to happen and then you go back and you really tighten things up. That paragraph, uh, I found that I didn't have quite the language to articulate what I was trying to convey about Rune feeling one with the leper. And in the way that life works, you know, I think when you're working on a novel it's almost as though there's a magnet so you stumble onto things that are just what you needed and somebody a, a friend of mine from from Holland actually was a house guest for a while while she was pursuing something at stanford and she was into listening to this particular very articulate hindu priest from la a temple in la who was explaining hindu concepts of maya and i listened and i was just struck by his art by his degree of articulation, the wonderful way he used language. And then he used this example of, you know, Brahma, you know, Brahma is sort of the everything of this universe. And we are just a single droplet in a spray from a wave somewhere in the
1: ocean. I mean, that is how minuscule we are. Why did you choose to make leprosy a centerpiece of this story? Well, I mean, leprosy has a- Is it a metaphor for how people were treated during AIDS?
2: Very much so. I mean, leprosy became a metaphor, the word leprosy itself. But well before that, as an infectious disease specialist, leprosy has had a hallowed place in our our specialty because it's a very peculiar disease. This bacterium divides very, very slowly. Some people are vulnerable, some are not. It's been difficult to treat. It's uh, historically hugely important and significant. Are there still lepers? Well, that's the interesting thing. These were, they were abundant in my childhood. They were abundant during my training. It's become a very rare disease, uh, although I diagnosed one in Texas when I was practicing in Texas. So it does still happen, but it's very uncommon. I just like the idea of forcing the reader to come to terms with something that I think all of us have to come to terms with, that the person on the outside that you see, scarred by this illness, is not the same as the person on the inside. And mm. you have to get past that external part that can be quite, quite disconcerting, can be quite repulsive even, and appreciate that you are them. That, But for the grace of God, that could be you.
1: Yes, yeah, it's the same thing where, when someone has had a disfiguring stroke and they are still themselves in here but from the outside it looks like they're not and so obviously people treat them differently but they're really saying i'm in here
2: absolutely i'm in here absolutely and with leprosy the irony is that because of the facial muscle muscle paralysis their every expression is distorted so a smile looks like a snarl Mm -hmm. you know and and i think that that, that recognition that in there is someone, and I, I, I sense this with people, children with cerebral palsy that I see from time to time, or people mm-hmm. with cerebral palsy, that there's an intelligent, vibrant human being inside, and you have to get past the sort of motor things you're seeing on the outside to really be patient enough to allow them to express themselves at their pace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the message can be profound. Uh, mm-hmm. Stephen Hawkins, not that he had cerebral palsy, but is an example of that, Yeah, uh,
1: you know? The way Rune uh, imagines how the lepers must feel is so haunting on page 201, so let's listen to that. In chapter 24, A Change of Heart, you say this. Rune puzzles over their strange laughter, The mind must get scarred from being
2: rejected in this matter. These two have died to their loved ones and to society, and that wound is greater than the collapsing nose, the hideous face, or the loss of fingers. Leprosy deadens the nerves and is therefore painless. The real wound of leprosy and the only pain they feel is that of exile. That's the purpose of a lazaretto. Brun thinks, a home at the end of the world, a place where the dead can live with their own kind and where the spirit might rise.
1: I still feel haunted by that sentence where he makes us think of the many people in the world who are still feeling exiled and how being a leper is like being exiled. I love this quote from um, later in the book from Digby. He says, in the... Upside-down world, as you were just mentioning, snarls or smiles, ugly is beautiful, and the crippled outwork the able-bodied, but tears are the same. Yeah, we were talking
2: earlier about the spirit being wounded, at how every illness has two compartments. There's yes. the physical loss, and then there's the woundedness of the spirit. Well,
1: all disease is a violation of the spirit.
2: All diseases, and, but leprosy, I mean, my God, the physical disfigurement is huge. Mm-hmm. The rejection from society is tremendous, and so the violation of the spirit is indescribable. You are banished to this world where you can only live with others disfigured like you, and it, it actually—I've noticed this in some of the patients I saw and cared for—that it produces sort of a macabre alteration of personality at times because you can't be rejected in this fashion and violated in this fashion without being affected in the way you interact with the world.
1: Mm. Let's talk about Amachi and Amachi and everything she endures after she loses her husband. What is the source of her strength? I mean, is this what you witnessed when you were a young boy, women and their endless ability to give and give and give and their forgiveness?
2: I think so, especially my grandmother on my, mother's, on my father's side. She was extremely religious, and every evening when we were visiting there, we would have prayers, the, the traditional prayers. And mm-hmm. she would be in her bedroom, which opened out onto this hallway, and the men, all of us, would be in the hallway, and you know, going through these prayers. And when it was over, uh, and lamps are lit everywhere because there's no electricity, when it was over, she would be sobbing in her room, on the mat, you know, her forehead pressed to the floor, and uh, every evening, at a certain point, my father, or my uncle, would say to her, "Madi uh, amachi," which means "enough, mother." You know, mm-hmm. go to bed. And what was she sobbing about? She was remembering, you know, all her losses. She was mm-hmm. recalling the son who died of rabies, the husband who died young, and God knows what else she was thinking about. But Every morning she was, you know, bright as rain. She was in a fresh mundu and the hearth fire was lit. And so it's uh, faith that keeps you going. It's ritual that keeps you going.
1: Faith in ritual?
2: Faith in ritual. But you're you're still carrying your losses as much as you carry
1: your victories and your triumphs. Ami has a question about the elephant. Ami?
2: Dr. Parghese, in the book, Gamrodham the elephant gives faith to the family and is always a helper. In any way, is this a reference to the Indian god Ganesh in the Hindu tradition? Yeah, that's interesting. I, 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 um, I'm very aware of the Indian god Ganesh. I mean, and I like that god. There's so much beautiful art around representations of Ganesh. But I think I was much more influenced by as a child seeing elephants go by my grandparents' place on their way to work or on their way to the river to be washed. And it was always like the circus was going by in the sense that children couldn't help themselves, they'd run out to take a look. And something about this beautiful, ponderous movement of the giant creature fascinated me. And I think in the story, I was projecting persona on the elephant and uh, projecting motive and movement uh, uh, that is deliberate. But I really think that elephants have that capacity. I mean, there are documentaries showing the relationship between a mahout and the elephant, and you get the sense this is an almost human, you know, creature interacting in a very human way, albeit uh, serving me- uh, men and women in a the way they don't usually.
1: So there's a great line in the book that says, um... Uh, fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives and nina has a question about this quote
0: nina hi i'm nina dapalori i i love what you have written in your book that the quote that fiction is the great lie that tells us the truth and i'm wondering my question to you is what was the hard truth that you hope to convey in writing this book and as a follow-up what was the hard truth that you learned or discovered as you were writing the book
2: Ooh, yeah i mean i've always loved that quote it it almost seems self-evident but it it bears restating and i think Camus is the one who first came up with this fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives and you know, that is how we learn as children. We learn fairy tales, we learn legends, we learn we learn through stories. Stories are instructions for mm-hmm. living. And it boggles my mind that-
1: And the best way to also change people's minds and also eliminate the way other people live and to bring people closer together and connection.
2: It's what you do. Yeah. It's what you do with your book club. And it always boggles my mind that when people become adults and serious adults, they often have a feeling like, well, I'm beyond fiction, I read mm-hmm. biographies, I read, yeah. you know, political... I know, I
1: love when people say, no, I don't read fiction, I read yeah. nonfiction." Okay. And Good they video. say it with
2: some pride, and yes. I think, you know, what a loss, because if you don't have the experience of taking the little digital signals we call words on the page and making your own mental movie, I mean, Nina's made her own movie, mm-hmm. which might be different from somebody else's, if you don't have that experience... I think a part of your brain atrophies. This is what I say to my medical students to scare them into reading fiction. And actually some of the most respected physicians I've looked up to, my mentors, one common quality is they all read fiction.
1: So let's go on to part four. We find Digby in the depths of despair. Let's listen to page 248. In chapter 30, Dinosaurs and Hill Stations, this is what he said. Every face that
2: hovers over his bed, honorines, ravis, mutus, and the probationers whose hair lip he repaired in a previous life, pierces him with shame. Shame for disappointing them. Shame because he is Digby the adulterer, Digby the murderer. Shame hounds his waking. He wants to crawl to a cave where light cannot penetrate, where he might be spared the gaze of others, especially that of his forgiving friends. If only he could leave the human race
1: and become the earthworm he deserves to be, This is when he loses, he's lost his identity because who is he without being a doctor? Who is he without being able to use his his hands? And I thought that there was such a great spiritual lesson here because so many people identify with their roles, the roles that they play in the world. And so when something like a tragedy happens or disease comes, who are you when that identity disappears? And anybody who's ever been in a hospital knows this, that there's nothing more vulnerable than a hospital bed. So, uh, we were talking in another episode about how doctors are the worst patients. Were you thinking about all that when you're writing this story?
2: I'm not sure I was thinking about it, but I'm certainly infused with that knowledge, mm-hmm. which I've, you know, has informed my life. And so, yes, in Digby, I saw him as a character who, um, you know finds meaning in his world and finds ways to treat his wounds by this profession, which means so much to him. And there are parallels with my life. You know, I've often wondered if I gave up medicine, which I'm scared to think about, but if I did give it up, let's say, to become a full-time writer, I'm terrified that I have nothing to say because, you know, this is how medicine has been for me. It's been, you know, like, like Chekhov says, my lawful wedded wife, and literature is, is the mistress. Um, you know, it's so much a part of our identity. And so I, giving this character the wound of losing his livelihood, We his normally
1: hands. don't condone adultery, but in, in the case that <laughs> literature is your mistress, we all applaud that. That's pretty good.
2: Again, not my line, but Chekhov. I think it's a good line. It, it sort of reflects the, the sense of calling. And if you, you feel guilty, if you're doing something that's not aligned with this, at least I do, My rationale is I don't play golf, I don't watch much TV, so I'm allowed to express myself after hours in this fashion. And believe it or not, for the longest time, I had to be apologetic about my writing early in my career. Uh, I've been very lucky, you know, Stanford has embraced this, but it's not always been the case. People pay you to do a certain job and they're not... Paying you to go off and write. Yeah, if you're off, you know, promoting this book that you supposedly wrote, it's not the most exciting thing for them to... Support.
1: On page 254, you write this, I love this so much, that the journey the two of them embark on together must begin with love, Rune thinks, to love the sick. Isn't that always the first step? Do most doctors feel that way?
2: I'm not sure that I think that way every single moment of the patient, but that quote is terribly important to me because on my bedroom wall is a framed quotation by Paracelsus. It, and it says, and Paracelsus is an ancient physician, kind of a strange guy, but it's another story. But his quote is, to love the sick, each and every one of them, as if they were your own. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, frankly, every time, one of my family or I'm ill, how do you want to be treated? You want to be treated as though you're their family member, you know, you want that kind of attention. And so I think that's what Paracelsus was getting at. You can't diet it up because you know this patient. You've got to treat every patient as if they were your own. And sometimes that's challenging. If you're in a public hospital, you have people who, in what they say and how they treat you, you know, and how they respond to you are doing anything but acting as though they're grateful or you know, want you, and you have to still do it.
1: Continuing with Dr. Roon, who introduces Digby to Elsie. Let's listen to the passage from when they are drawing together. This is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite patches. This is, I, the, I've said this many times, but this is really my favorite on page 269. In chapter 33, Hans writing, uh, one of my favorite chapters, you say this. He glances up at his partner,
2: Elsie, little fawn who has also suffered the loss of a mother, do you know that somehow we managed to do what time could not? For all these years, the only image I carried of my mother, the facies that superseded any other, was of her obscene, monstrous death mask. His mother rises off the paper. He smells the lavender she placed in her folded cardigans. He feels he is in her arms again. Forgive her, he hears a voice say. I do, he says aloud, I do. Helpless tears trickle down his cheeks. Elsie presses her lips together in alarm. The living, moving sculpture of their two hands stutters and then stops. With his awkward left hand, Digby tugs the ribbon loose and sets her free. He tries to give her a reassuring smile.
1: Hmm. Did you know then what was going to happen later? No, I actually
2: didn't. I think, um, you know, I was well into this story and uh, Elsie came along, but I don't think I completely saw how, how they would get together. I, you didn't? I don't even remember when that possibility occurred to me. I think Elsie had to disappear from Parambil and there was And this, also
1: she was only nine years old at the time this, yeah, so yeah. This, yeah. and he was 30 exactly. and he was acting like the nine-year-old in her presence because he was a bit intimidated by her yeah yeah
2: but i think once i saw it then i obviously came back and you know i i love uh, milan kundera says in uh, the novel says that the first moments between you know a man and a woman predicate everything that's going to follow and really this is not I mean, supposedly, if they're going to have a relationship together forever. Oh, okay. but, the, but the first few moments are almost like a foreshadowing of everything. And I wanted to make this like that, but not too heavy-handedly because clearly there's a huge age difference and right, neither right. of them is thinking that way. Nevertheless, she is the one who unlocks his hand and helps him get over this obstacle of his mother's hanging, him, hanging herself to forgive her. She's the instrument. Mm. And I'm not sure at what point I saw that when she suffered her own loss, they would find commonality
1: and actually come together. I think that's interesting. You're not even sure when that happened. One of our readers, Laura, has a question about the meaning of art in the book.
0: Hello, I'm Laura. I absolutely loved The Covenant of Water. I'm a 30-year educator, a mom of three teen daughters, and I thought the book was beautiful. Dr. Verghese, my question is, what is the connection between science and art, particularly medicine and art? In the book, you have so many beautiful, empathetic depictions of doctors and surgeons in particular, and I know that you yourself are a doctor and an artist. I happen to be married to an orthopedic surgeon who is very artistic and have a daughter who's interested in studying biology and is a beautiful visual artist. So I'm very curious about the connection between science and art. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, I think we used to talk about medicine as the art of medicine. Mm -hmm. We don't seem to use that term as much anymore, but there was a recognition many years ago that this business of one human being caring for another was more than the simple scientific application of facts. In fact, there wasn't much science, and so it was very transactional and centered around the relationship. And I think as we've gotten more technological, we seem to have forgotten that. I don't think that's the sense in which you were asking that question. You were asking about art in terms of fine art. And, you know, I think that. Um, it's been a very long standing tradition for medical scenes to be depicted in art variously by by non-physicians for example the very famous painting the doctor um you know is is sort of a perhaps the most famous depiction of a physician caring for a patient ever but many many more examples like that uh, i'm not sure that there's a direct relationship i think there's a lot of erudite essays written on the topic but i certainly had no conscious thought of that as i was writing the book i I had developed this interest in Elsie becoming an artist and um, i just kept pushing it further and further Um, i think that's about all i can say about this topic
1: i see this theme of art in both of the fiction books because of the drawing that shiva used to do in cutting for stone and obviously Elsie in this book and Digby. I, so I thought maybe there's a thing with physicians and, and drawing that we don't know. And pr- certainly with Gray's Anatomy, the fact that he gives her Gray's Anatomy in Cutting for Stone, the brother gives the other brother Grey's Anatomy.
2: Wow. You know, I had not thought about that till this moment.
1: Really? Know. really? You know, this is
2: unfortunate because I'm revealing my shallowness, I suspect you. No. I just, I, I
1: thought I'll... that there was a th- I thought, well, obviously we know, well, everybody knows Grey's Anatomy from the Shonda Rhimes series, but how important that book must have played in every intern's life, right?
2: Well, it was particularly important to me because I loved Uh, the figures in it, you know, and I Mm. go on about them. I mean, because to learn anatomy is pretty hard. And my brother is a professor at MIT. He's written a book, and the only part of it I understand is the title. And so he would look at my Gray's anatomy and say, how in the world can you remember this? Uh, because, you know, our final exam was five essay questions. That could be anywhere in this whole book. Right. One bone, one joint, one organ, you know. So you had to m- literally memorize passages. And to this day, I can rattle off, you know, uh, about the brachial plexus. The brachial plexus is formed by the union of C5, 6, 7, 8, and T1 with a contribution from It's It's buried somewhere in there, you know. And unlike him, I could read those words and see something taking shape and then these diagrams, these beautiful illustrations would make them come alive. So the book was particularly important to me.
1: Near the end of part four, on page 286, you write about Digby pondering his identity and his future, let's listen. In chapter 36, No Wisdom in the Grave, Rune and Digby discuss this. A few
2: days before Rune's death, Digby had asked him the question he'd first asked when they'd met at the Mylan's estate. Will I operate again? Rune had deliberated, the plumes of smoke rising like cartoon bubbles as yet unlettered. Then he tapped his skull with the stem of his pipe. Digby, what differentiates us from other animals isn't the opposable thumb. It's our brains. That's what made us the dominant species. Not hands, but what we think to do with our hands. You know our motto at St. Bridget's? It's from Ecclesiastes. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest.
1: So I wanted to ask you, what is your interpretation of that verse from Ecclesiastes? What is it teaching us?
2: I think that's perhaps one of the most lovely, powerful verses that I that I favor. Uh, not that I'm a biblical scholar, but that verse is always echoed with me. I mean, it reflects Shamuel's labor every day, plowing the field, whatever he's doing, he's gonna bring his full attention to it.
1: Mm, uh, we
2: love Shamuel. Love, I love Shamuel. It reflects, you know, the the. Yeoman courage of the physicians. They just show up every day and they're doing stuff that's not always rewarded and that, you know, it's hard, but they're, they're just doing it. So I think it's, it's another way of saying be fully present because, you know, this is not a dress rehearsal. There isn't something after this, or if there is, we don't really know about it. So this moment, this, we'll bring our very best to this. Don't hold it hold back, because that's all there is, is this. Mm-hmm. And then you bring it to the next moment and the next one. And you know, so whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. For there is no wisdom nor succor in the grave.
1: We're going to end our conversation about part four right there. And I hope you meet us next time. For parts five and six of The Covenant of Water. Thank you to all of our insightful readers. For your questions, and thank you, Abraham Verghese. Thank you. I know this novel has made an impact on everyone who reads it. I'd love to hear your thoughts and how it has impacted you. Find us at Oprah's Book Club on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, and check out Oprah Daily for even more about The Covenant of Water and author Abraham Verghese.
2: A tale that leaves its imprint on a listener.
1: The Covenant of Water audiobook is narrated by the author, Abraham Verghese. It's available now wherever books are sold. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.